the Equipping Podcast. My name's Karen Hinson, and I'm here with co-host Nathan Wagner. What up? What up? What up? You know, I've been thinking. What have you been thinking? I want to know more about the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> well, you're in luck. I, I think uh, you may end up learning more than you probably want to know. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, because we got Doug Grop back with us this week, and we're going to dive even deeper into the Dead Sea Scrolls. Didn't know it was possible, but here we are. Even though if you try to dive in the Dead Sea, you cannot dive because you're just going to float. <laughs> that's true. That's that's your fun fact for the morning. It totally is. You can't swim in the or you can't dive in the Dead Sea because there's too much salt. And for those of you who want to know, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Except for the fact that they found about eight or nine hundred manuscripts around the Dead Sea that are really interesting. So let's talk about it. We're back this week with Dr. Doug Gropp, and he is a Dead Sea Scroll expert, which is totally awesome. Um, he was part of the international team of editors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He joined that team in 1986 and then uh, has just been working in this area ever since then. And so, Doug, welcome back, man. We're glad Thank you're you. back in the studio with us. Glad to be back. Okay, so we are going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls today. And just to give you guys a qualifier, this is a really complex field of study that has a lot of details and a lot of ways that you can zero in on it in a really, really, really specific way. But today, this isn't even really an introduction. This is more like a preface. So just uh, give us grace here. If you have studied the Dead Sea Scrolls for a long time, just know that we're going to talk really high level just to give you an overview so that you understand what these things are. So last week, we talked a lot just about the how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, what they are, kind of the political intrigue around them and, and some conspiracy stuff. But this week, I really want to dive into what actually are the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what's in them? Right. Why is what's in them significant for us? And so why don't you just start us off by talking about just the texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If they're in English, you know, and we're just sitting there going, oh, what is this? Then what are we going to find if we're reading Yeah, that's things? a great way of framing it. Remember, we talked last time about a broader and a narrower definition of Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. And then broader definition, there are nine different fine sites around the Dead Sea that are dry, have a dry enough climate to, for these scrolls to be preserved. But in the narrower sense, which I think is what we're addressing here, is this, the scrolls found in caves around this community center, these ruins of Qumran on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. So let's focus on those. And this is, this is an extraordinary fact in itself. There don't seem to be any legal kinds of occasional texts that were discovered hmm. in these caves. They were all religious texts. So you're not going to get like a civil code on how to sue your neighbor or what you should right. do in this instance. It's dealing with priestly things, with ceremonial things, right. that kind of thing. And things relate very closely related to the Bible. So yep. there's, let's say, I mean, I don't hold me about the numbers, but let's say we're dealing with 800, 900 texts, different distinct textual works represented. And just a little over 200 of these are actual copies of the Bible mm. in Hebrew. Most of the texts total are in Hebrew. There's a few in Aramaic, even a smaller number in Greek. The non-biblical texts 
are all religious and they are all in some way related to the Bible. They could be considered their biblical interpretation or their community rules derived in some way from the Bible. They're, they're all religious texts. So we have the text of these things that are kind of, I don't know if you can say like parabiblical or yeah. like something like that. It's like, it's like a round yeah. and they're all religious right? and they pertain to these 200 ish scrolls that are biblical text. Mm-hmm. So what are those 200 scrolls that are biblical text? Yeah. I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but they copied or they had copies of some books, more copies of some books than others. So they'd have more copies of the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, for instance, and they would some of the other texts. But most of the texts of our Old Testament are represented. Esther is an exception. Karen, they left the woman out. <laughs> What else is new? <laughs> All these what men, I tell you, can't be trusted. The book of Chronicles, I think, might be represented in a single copy. Which is interesting because Chronicles is, is late. I mean, yeah. one of the last books of, of the Hebrew canon. An right? interesting thing to me is that if you do a kind of a graph of the uh, how many copies of each book of the Bible mm-hmm. are represented at Qumran, it's very similar to if you look in an index of the New Testament and see how often different books of the Bible are quoted in the New Testament, mm-hmm. it's a similar contour. Yeah, that is interesting. Which Very suggests interesting. that they're interpreting, they're viewing the same text as scriptural yeah. uh, in the New Testament as at Qumran, and that in the in, they're in a similar framework of interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to our podcast series with Scott Booth on the transmission of the Old Testament. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But we talked about this there, and and it's worth bringing up now as well, is that when we think about the transmission of the Old Testament, we're not talking about these guys who, you know, all got together in this one spot, and there was this dude with a pen, and the heavens part, and the voice of God, you know, comes out of the heavens and says, write this down. And they write the entire Isaiah scroll all at once, you know, and it's like, that is the inerrant word of God. So that's not how this worked, like, at all. (laughs) Not even close. What we actually find in the Dead Sea Scrolls is multiple different textual traditions. Is that a fair way to say it? That's fair, yeah. How how would you describe it? Well, I mean, what... I would start with what we knew before the Dead Sea Scrolls, Mm -hmm. which were, what do we know of the text of the Old Testament before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered? Well, we had this medieval Hebrew text that we know as the Masoretic text. It's not a single manuscript. It's a whole family of manuscripts. And most of our traditional English translations of the Old Testament are based squarely on this medieval Hebrew text, Mm -hmm. the Masoretic text, okay? So we had that. And then there was also a Jewish translation from, let's say, the third century uh, before the Common Era uh, called the Septuagint that was preserved in the church, even though it was originally translated by the Jews. And that has some differences. It's a Greek translation. It's not the original Hebrew. It's a Greek translation, but it has some significant differences from our medieval Hebrew Masoretic text. Yep. Then there's a third 
text called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which was preserved by this group. It's in Hebrew. It's preserved by this Samaritan, distinct Samaritan community. Which is north of Jerusalem and in the right, area, in, the, in Samaria. And Gerizim is, yeah. is their kind of capital where they have their own practices and their own way of viewing things. And that's where the Samaritan Pentateuch right. is housed. Yeah. So the interesting thing about the Old Testament as represented at Qumran is some of the texts are dated as early as the middle of the third century. And there's a very, very strong continuity between the readings in those texts and what we find in the medieval Hebrew text. Which is the Masoretic text, which is what our English translations are based on. Right. Yes. So there's very few differences. There's two, two large Isaiah scrolls that were discovered already in 1947, and there are really very few substantive differences between the Masoretic text that our translations are based on and the Qumran text. And none of the substantive differences change any kind of the meaning of no, the text. But this isn't completely the whole story because mm-hmm. there is a surprising diversity of manuscripts found at Qumran. And there are some manuscripts, a minority of manuscripts that support distinctive readings of the Septuagint right. and also of the Samaritan Pentateuch. Right. So you're saying there's texts that support the Masoretic tradition, which is this medieval manuscript that the English translations are based on. Yeah. But then there's also texts that support the Samaritan Pentateuch in Samaria and the Gerizim, right. and also some texts that support this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible right. in Alexandria in the third century yeah. BC. Yeah. And all of them are at Qumran. Well, I think what, what's important for our listeners to understand is you have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, but it had a Hebrew text that it's right. translated from, right. and that Hebrew text is represented at Qumran. Right. Then you have the Masoretic text, which is what we read from right. our Bible, and then we have this American Pentateuch, and all of those, in, as far as the biblical text goes, there aren't like massive differences between those where like it's not Moses, it's Larry instead, you know, or David wasn't the king. There was no kingdom. Like no, none of that. Right. The differences between them are relatively minute. Just to help our listeners understand, like between the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, like that's a thousand year gap that we didn't have any evidence for between what the Old Testament would have originally, quote unquote, originally said. And so if we have this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's a thousand years earlier than what we had been holding on to as our earliest full manuscript, then that's significant. Yeah, I hope I'm not getting too technical here by introducing this, but some of the other sites uh, where some biblical texts were found, like Matzara, Murabat, Nachal there were biblical texts from a, let's say the second century, mm-hmm. the early in the second century of our era. And there's a convergence of lines of evidence, which would suggest that there was a standardization of the text between the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD and a second Jewish revolt in the early second century. So that the Masoretic text that we have around the thousand AD is virtually identical to what was uh, available around 100 AD. Yeah, and they call that the proto-Masoretic text. Right. Yep. So then the Qumran scrolls takes us several centuries 
back before that, which shows that the text represented in the Masoretic text is well represented in those Qumran documents alongside of the you know, evidence for the right. behind the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint. Well, and by well represented, you mean, hey, we could compare the two and they are very, very similar. Right. And right. so they, it's not anything shocking. No, no, no. Like similarities so similar that you're kind of like, whoa. Just to be completely above board and honest, there's two of the manuscripts that support the Septuagintal readings are particularly from the book of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Those two manuscripts support Septuagint of Jeremiah. And the Septuagint of Jeremiah, if you make it a comparison with the Masoretic text of Jeremiah, is quite different in its arrangement mm-hmm. and uh, even in the amount of text there is. So, it really looks like a different edition of yeah, Jeremiah, yeah, yeah. in fact. Yeah. So, so, you're saying like, if you're going to divide Jeremiah into four different sections, then you're saying the Masoretic text goes one, two, three, four, and the Septuagint version of it might be like four, two, one, three. Something like that. It's similar content, right. different arrangement right. in how it's said. Right. And it's a little bit shorter, right? Yes. Than yes. the Masoretic text. And so I'm sitting here going, wait, hold the phone. <laughs> like, should we be worried? Is that is that cause for concern? And I think what you mean is, does that undermine yeah. our trust the in authority the, of scripture in the biblical text? And yeah, help us understand. I mean, this is speculative, but I think probably the Septuagint version of the Book of Jeremiah is probably representing an earlier Early. arrangement. Yep. But that doesn't mean that the later arrangement isn't scripture. Right. Again, if you haven't listened to that Old Testament transmission with Scott Booth and go back and listen to it because we talked about all this. It's not that God is just sovereign over like, okay, it's just this, I'm, I'm just going to give this to Jeremiah once. Yeah. God is sovereign over the entire process. So even if Jared, which I mean, it did without a question undergo different editorial type seasons. And then it entered this final form that is preserved in the Masoretic text. Then, I mean, I think we as believers in the text, and a high view of scripture believe that God is sovereign over that whole process. Right. When I interviewed Dan Wallace about the uh, New Testament text, you can go back and listen to that as well, because the New Testament is very similar. There, In the Gospels, there are stories that are what we call floating texts, where it shows up in one gospel in one place, in another gospel in another place, and in another gospel, it's like stitched at the end, you know? And you're like, well, which one is it? Yeah. And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's not like this, the, the Jeremiah version of the Septuagint is substantively right. different than the Masoretic right. text. It's just arranged differently right. and it's shorter. And even if there's limitations in our knowledge... Our, our faith doesn't fall like a no, house no, no, of cards, no, 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 no. you know, Good. because we can't get every single piece. Yeah. Right, right. So exactly. it's okay that this process yeah. isn't clean. It's okay that we can't fully understand all the details of the yeah. of how it's been transmitted. Yeah. Like it's still trustworthy. And it's important too for me to insert this here. Like our faith doesn't rest on the arrangement of Jeremiah. Preach. Like mm-hmm. our faith rests on the resurrection, yeah, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So our lack of understanding in, in all of the details on this should not bother us. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Now, if if somehow there was some smoking gun that showed that Jesus didn't exist or that, you know, that he didn't die and he or that he wasn't raised from the dead, then we need to 
be concerned about that, right? But mm-hmm. I think this Paul is a, mentions that in First Corinthians. Another example that I thought about in in regard to the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, which I thought was interesting, that's in First Samuel eleven, where uh, Samuel is talking about how you know he he's trying to get Saul to become the king and. And all these guys are like, no, Saul's not good. And then it, it transitions really quickly to where this Ammonite king comes up to Jabesh Gilead and starts gouging the eyes out of people, right? Which is totally right, crazy. Right. Um, but, and in the Masoretic text, that's a really abrupt transition. But then in the Septuagint, there's a paragraph there yes. that gives a lot more detail and like formally introduces this guy. And so there's things like that where you're like, Okay. And that paragraph is in in one of the Qumran scrolls. Right, mm-hmm. totally. So. That's represented there. And so it's things like that where you're like, huh, okay. And if you're asking the question, like, which one is original? I think we have to say, we don't know. But so what? <laughs> I say fun. that a lot. I <laughs> yeah. have no idea. I mean, I think that's true. So what? Probably in that case, the reading of the, the, the longer reading yeah, probably the is original. Yeah. Because it flows with, like, there are other places where they introduce kings and give context for a story. And so it shouldn't surprise us that, you know, the internal evidence is showing us, hey, right. the Septuagint reading is probably original. That's the discipline of, of Old Testament textual criticism, mm-hmm. which is a thing. Mm-hmm. So this shouldn't derail us to know that, hey, there's three different textual traditions that are represented. They all substantively agree with one another. There are these differences like arrangement, like length, like the paragraph I just talked about in 1 Samuel 11. And I think that we're just going, okay, that the process of this transmission was not this super clean. We have a a substantive explanation for every single difference because we don't. And that's okay. Like history is not that clean. But we can say like with some confidence, like, hey, that the English translation that we have is well represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. If we trace it back 2000 years, what we have is reliable based on the evidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls gives us. And the more modern translations are increasingly adopting readings from... The Dead Sea are affected by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, Doug, we've been talking about kind of like what these are, um, what's there, the correlation to the Masoretic text, which is what our English translations are based off of. But how would that community have thought about these texts? Did they consider all of them, both the both the two hundred biblical scrolls and then the six to seven hundred other parabiblical ones? Did they consider all of them scripture? Yeah. How did they delineate? Yeah, those? that's a good question, and 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 our answers have to be kind of inferential and and somewhat speculative. First of all, we have this notion of a canon of scripture with clear boundaries: mm-hmm. what's in and what's out. And the first kind of enumeration of of what's in and what's out really postdates the New Testament. It's mm-hmm. in it's in several places in Josephus, but particularly from the last decade of the first century mm-hmm. as the New Testament is being completed. Well, and just for our listeners, Josephus is a, is a historian from the first century who gives us insight into Jewish life and the events surrounding his lifetime. Right. Very broadly. Right. That's yeah. who he is. Yeah, it does the antiquity of the Jews, which is the, the history of, of Israel. Right. And then he has uh, the Jewish wars. Yeah, that where he's, that's more contemporary work. to his yeah. 
situation. And then he has these uh, different letters. One of them is against Apion, yeah. who's this Greek dude who's trying to blow some stuff up. And I mean, like metaphorically blow <laughs> some stuff up. And and Josephus is like, no, 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 no. It's that really famous paragraph where he, has, he says, hey, we don't have a whole bunch of books like the Greeks do. Like we have, we have these. Well, and he's one of our earliest sources from that time frame of what's credible, what we can trust as far as the Old right. Testament. Right. So he lists 22, he, I mean, he doesn't list the books, but he tells us that we have 22 books that are scripture yep. inspired. And he categorizes God. them. And he categorizes yeah, so the books them of in, Moses. He puts them into three different categories. Yeah. We have to guess what in our Old Testament corresponds to those 22 books, but there's, uh, it's very plausible that those 22 books list all of the books, at least in the The Hebrew Hebrew Bible Mm -hmm. and the the Old Testament as it's understood by Protestants in particular Mm -hmm. and by many of the church fathers. Then there's this other text, which is roughly contemporary with that, called 4th Ezra, an apocalyptic text. Wait, there's more than one Ezra? (laughs) I can't find it in my Bible. Yeah, it's not in our Bible. I'm missing two Ezra and three Ezra and four Ezra. How many of these guys are there? (laughs) So tell us what what 4th Ezra is. It's, it's It's an apocalyptic text. Um, What do you mean by that? Well, I mean a text that's written about the future, but particularly a kind of the future of the end time, so to speak. It's a revelation, supposedly through Ezra, through an angel who reveals what's going to happen. So if you haven't listened, sorry, I've got to keep plugging our podcast. This is our podcast. <laughs> You're allowed to do that. But if you haven't listened to our uh, two-part series with Scott Duvall on the book of Revelation, we talk about the apocalyptic genre quite a bit yeah. in that one. So go back and listen to that. We'll talk apocalyptic. But yeah, this fourth Ezra is in the apocalyptic genre. Yeah, so why is it not in our Bible? And why can we still trust it if it's not in our Bible? Well, I'm not suggesting that we trust it as divine revelation. I'm just saying that it represents a conception, a Jewish conception from the very end of the first century. Mm -hmm. It's helping us understand how they would have thought about these things. Fourth Ezra talks about 24 books, but also a group of 70 books. Now, in the New Testament, we're not told... What books of the Old Testament are inspired? And we're not given a list of the books anywhere. We're not given a number of the books anywhere. So it's really not all of what we consider the Old Testament is actually quoted or cited or even alluded to Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. But that enumerations uh, occur at the end of the first century. Similar situation is found at Qumran. How did they think of what we call the Old Testament? And then let's step back a little bit and ask ourselves, what do we mean by Scripture? Yeah, that's good. Okay? So, I think we think of Scripture as something that is somehow divinely inspired, so the actual text, as the Apostle Paul says, is is breathed out by God, Mm -hmm. okay? But it's also human. It's also a product of uh, human pens, a human authorship, human editorship. Yep, yep how the divine inspiration and the human cooperation with that works is a, is a complete mystery. Yeah. Well, when us. you figure that out, you should write a book about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> He'll ship it to us yeah. from heaven. <laughs> the revelation to Doug. <laughs> uh, do we find this notion of scripture 
in this divinely inspired sense in the Old Testament? Mm. Well, we have the phrase word of God all the time, but the word of God generally refers to a spoken word that comes from God inspiring a prophet to speak his words. It's a proclamation, not necessarily a group of texts. There's just at most an incipient notion of scripture mm-hmm. within the Old Testament itself yeah. in this more particular context. For instance, in the book of Daniel chapter 9, he talks about he was searching through the books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or the, you could even translate it the scriptures, mm-hmm. but he seems to be referring to prophetic texts. And in the context, he's referring more particularly to the book of Jeremiah. So then we begin to get, in the intertestamental period, we get a few references to holy books and things like that, which are in continuity with what we find in the New Testament when Jesus and the other scriptural writers talk about scriptures, Mm -hmm. okay, scriptures as written texts, particularly inspired by God. Well, we find very similar conception in the Qumran community. Interesting. But which of our books did they consider scripture? Yeah. And because they don't speak about it directly, you have to use various criteria mm-hmm. for what they consider scripture. Which can be difficult because it's not like those criteria, it's not like they wrote them down and said, these books are scripture because A, B, C, D, you know. Yeah. It's more of like a inference. Right. Um, it's looking, our inference. Yeah, right, right. Looking at history, I mean, obviously, none of those dudes are alive anymore, so they can't just, like, tell us. But we're looking back at this body of work and going, what did you guys care about? Right. And how did that delineate itself? So what's the answer to that? I think we can say that they had a very definite view of scripture, and they understood it as divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. They generally understood the scriptures to be prophetic. Most of what we consider part of our Old Testament seems to be treated as scripture at Qumran. We can't say that for every book. I mean, they may not, for various reasons, have treated the book of Esther, for instance, as scripture. Yeah, it's not even there. It's not there, but it, there are some other reasons why they may not have considered it scripture. Yeah, right. and, and when you say that they treated it as prophetic, what do you mean by that? Because I think some of our audience may yeah. think like, oh, it's all about the end times or something. Because a lot of people right. think of prophecy as foretelling. Um, how would they yeah. have thought about prophecy? It's almost coextensive with the idea of divine inspiration. Prophetic inspiration is, I mean, divine inspiration is prophetic inspiration, but they did view it as foretelling Mm. and particularly relevant for their own time. I mean, this is parallel to the New Testament where, as Paul says, we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Meaning, Scripture is about Christ and about this time. There's this anticipation of the fulfillment of the kingdom in their day. Right. I think they conceive of it differently than than in the New Testament, but I think most of what we consider our Old Testament would have been recognized by the Qumran community as divinely inspired Scripture. But there's also a number of other texts 
that we would vaguely put, especially into kind of a pseudepigraphic category. Pseudepigrapha is like a false... It's, it's like a false attribution. Yeah. So, so the book of Enoch, for instance, is attributed to this Enoch who's mentioned in Genesis 5. Who clearly is not here anymore. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. gone. Yeah. yeah, he's gone. He was yeah. taken. <laughs> um, but books were attributed to Enoch. Yeah. So like a false name writing. You write something and then put somebody else's name on it. Yeah. So the book of Enoch was attributed to Enoch. That's represented at Qumran, well represented. There's Mm -hmm. a book of Jubilees that's a retelling of Genesis, and a whole second part would probably be of Exodus, but we don't have that. That's also represented at Qumran. But there are a lot of texts that are sort of of this sort of pseudepigraphic category that we didn't know before yeah, that's good. Uh, Qumran. And some of those texts seem to be viewed as divinely inspired writings. Mm. So how do we understand that picture? Mm. They don't give us a number like Josephus or 4th Ezra mm. of texts, 22 books or 24 books or 70 books. But I think that the 4th Ezra reference helps us to understand the conception of the Qumran community. They had, let's say, a narrower group of inspired writings that would be our Hebrew Bible or our Old Testament, more or less. 22 or 24 books, depending on how you divide some of them. And we can't say that it would be exactly our, our canon. Like They may not have had the Book of Esther, probably not. Well, and to help our listeners understand, like uh, we have more because we've divided into 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, and we have 12 minor prophets. So all of that combined. It's 39 books, but in Hebrew, it's 22 or 24, depending on... So that's why the numbers are not matching up. It's the same text, but we've divided it differently, just to clarify. So they have their 24. They have their group, like their yeah. smaller group like yeah. that. But then they also have other books like Jubilees, like Enoch, mm-hmm. something that scholars have called a reworked Pentateuch, which also seem to have, be treated as scripture. Mm. Uh, scripture in a, in a broader sense, the relevant paragraph in 4th Ezra distinguishes between the books, the 24 books that are open to all Jews, and 70 books that are really for the wise, that is, the, those who are of a more esoteric character, apocalyptic and so on, that only the wise can, can interpret. Like, hey, study up on this before you start reading this book. Something like that, or or you've got to be qualified in order to read this. And I think a lot of what we would consider the non-biblical books at Qumran could fit into that category. So Mm -hmm. I think that passage in 4th Ezra chapter 14 gives us a structure to understand how to understand all these writings from Qumran Mm -hmm. that they seem to be treating, giving a scriptural status to, which are not in our... Hebrew Our Bible. Hebrew Bible. Yep, yep. Then there's a kind of, we might say, a third layer of texts, and these texts were probably composed by the Qumran sectarians themselves. Yeah. So the Qumran sectarians inherited the biblical texts, what we consider the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. They inherited more close to their own time, a group of texts that we would consider pseudepigraphic. Like Enoch and... Yes, like Enoch and Jubilees and Mm -hmm. so on, which Mm -hmm. they treat as scripture in some sense, divinely inspired. And then they have their own writings, 
which, you know, they might consider inspired, but in some looser sense of uh, inspired interpretation of the other writing. So if we zoom out, we can say, hey, we can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and see that at that time of that community, there is a generally accepted canon of the Old Testament. There's definitely a a strong notion of scripture. Right. And so... That's the same notion that we find in the New Testament. They hold these documents to high authority that they are the inspired word of God. And as we move forward a couple centuries, we see Josephus and Fourth Ezra affirm... That's where we have the clear boundary setting for uh, what we what is in Scripture and what's outside of Yeah, scripture. I think it's important to remember what we talked about last week, too, which is that this was a sectarian group. So we're getting a view oh, yeah. of how they would have viewed Scripture. It's literally this is not, one community This doesn't in the necessarily world. mean that the Essenes in Qumran were authoritative in the way that they totally. thought about these things. Because you see from Josephus a much broader view of, call it canon, call it just consensus about what these books of Scripture were. Yeah. Right. And then you have these delineations in 4th Ezra where they're going, hey, we have these books, which are for everybody. Right. And then these other ones, which require wisdom or for the wise. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it, it's helpful yeah. But it doesn't, it's not yeah. like it's this smoking gun to, totally. you know, oh, well, clearly this is what it was. If anything, if I could just say it in a really basic way, the text that we consider authoritative kind of just like emerged out of this. The conception of scripture that we find at Qumran is more or less the same that we find in the New Testament and then is later included in lists of the canon. So if we're looking at the broader picture of why are the Dead Sea Scrolls relevant, we've talked about the reliability of our Old Testament translation. Yeah. Now we've talked a little bit about the idea of scripture and canon The idea of scripture is really continuous between Mm -hmm. the Qumran and the New Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament, the one that Josephus is talking about, is central to what they're doing. So we have the Masoretic text that's well represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but one of the primary benefits of the Dead Sea Scrolls is how it frames for us our understanding of Second Temple Judaism, and then ultimately how we understand the New Testament. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I think if you think about the time before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, bringing out of their relevance for the New Testament— We knew that the New Testament was basically Jewish, very Jewish, Mm -hmm. resting on the Old Testament and so on, kind of a Jewish book. It was the general conception. Yeah, they're quoting the Old Testament left and right. Yeah. Yeah. But then our understanding of Judaism is largely derived from rabbinic Judaism, which is the traditional form of Judaism that continues to today, which really crystallized, especially at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century mm-hmm. into what it is. Mm-hmm. But the New Testament predates that. Yep. What was Judaism like before the development of rabbinic Judaism? And we didn't have that many. We, have, we had Josephus, we had Philo of Alexandria, but we didn't have a lot of resources for getting a bigger picture of Judaism, the Jewish matrix in the first century. Mm. Well, the discovery of the Qumran documents are revolutionary in that respect. For the most part, maybe not completely, rabbinic Judaism derived from 
the Judaism of the Pharisees that we know from Josephus and the New Testament. But the Qumran community apparently emerged from a group that saw itself over against the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. seem to, if we're interpreting the Dead Sea Scrolls correctly, the Qumran community sees the Pharisees as interpreters of smooth things, yeah. you know, and, and uh, they're, they're their opponents. Yeah, the, the establishment of the Essene community at Qumran generally is accepted as like a protest against what's happening in Jerusalem. Right. So they're, right. they're clearly yeah. not, they're clearly two different camps. They're two different camps. Now, in the Mishnah and Talmuds, when the rabbis talk about their Pharisaic roots, they sometimes make a contrast between the Pharisees and what we might translate as the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. And in an interesting number of cases, their opponents, the Tzadukim, the Sadducees, their views align closely with the views that we find reflected in the Qumran documents. Mm, Got it. So that would suggest, at the very least, that the roots of the development of Phariseeism leading to rabbinic view were already present in the early first century BC, if not earlier. Okay. That doesn't mean that the whole picture could be later, but some of the roots of it Mm. go back to the first century. Mm. So that's really pretty revolutionary for a new perspective on how Judaism developed. Yeah. So in in other words, to kind of summarize here, it's like we've had one point of view with rabbinic Judaism, which developed later. And then you have these Talmuds that are later as well. And so we're kind of like, hey, that's our view of Judaism. And then all of a sudden we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls and it's like, wait a second, there's this whole other point of view that's actually protesting this view that we've had. And so this is giving us a much fuller picture yes. of Second Temple right. Judaism than we've than we previously right. had. And and references within the New Testament about its own Judaism, hmm. the Judaic background of the New Testament can't be fully understood in terms of the later narrowing stream right. of right. rabbinic Judaism. Right. So the Qumran scrolls open up windows on a uh, much larger diversity of Yeah, Judaism. so you have this stream of like what's actually happening. And it's almost like rabbinic Judaism was like, like you said, a narrowing. So it's like a little tributary that goes off of the stream and we're hanging out there. And then all of a sudden the Dead Sea Scrolls happen and it like puts us back mm-hmm. into right. this fuller stream of, oh, right. now I'm seeing we have a much fuller and bigger and more right. accurate picture of what was actually going on. Right. So hope give us some examples. Yeah. So if you're like, hey, only understanding this rabbinic Judaism leaves you to misunderstand or incorrectly interpret some of what's going on in the New Testament. What can we more rightly understand Hmm. because of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So I'm thinking particularly, well, here's a couple of uh, books of the New Testament that I think would be affected by this is Paul's letter to the Colossians and the letter, the anonymous letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews is clearly written to a Jewish community. Mm -hmm. But if you take into account the concerns of that particular Jewish community, it doesn't sound like the form of Judaism that we know from later rabbinic texts. What I'm hearing you say is the, that the book of Hebrews is assuming a form of uh, Judaism because it does. I mean, the entire thing is 
talking about, uh, especially the second half of the book is talking about the sacrificial system and, and what all of this would have meant that if you're looking at it purely through the lens of the Talmud or rabbinic Judaism, which comes later, you're going to miss things or it doesn't yeah. seem to make as much sense. So right. the Dead Sea Scrolls come along and how does that change the way that we read Hebrews? Right, because there's so many aspects of uh, the Judaism that's reflected in Hebrews that links up with what we find in the Qumran. Right. Emphasis on uh, angels, yep. the importance of Melchizedek. I mean, within rabbinic Judaism, Melchizedek is identified, I think, with Seth, Uh you know, an early ancestor, but it not not so in the Qumran materials. There's just a whole lot. The emphasis on the tabernacle, you don't hear about the temple in the book of Hebrews, it's the tabernacle. Yeah. And that's becomes important also in the Qumran community, because remember, they're no longer yeah. in Jerusalem. Yeah. They're not they've in rejected, a central temple. It's... They've apparently rejected the temple. Yeah. So they have to worship God without it, which would be... Something like that. So yeah. there are all these points of connection. Uh, another case is that I think is very fascinating is Paul's letter to the Colossians. Who are Paul's opponents in the letter to the Colossians? Mm. And um, they're often thought to be proto-Gnostics. Mm. Uh, but Gnosticism, we only know Gnosticism from Irenaeus. mid to late late century, <laughs> mid to late second century. Yeah, yeah. And um, for our listeners, though, the Gnosticism we're talking about is during the writing of the New Testament, there was this early Christian heresy that salvation was known through this secret knowledge, which is the gnosis of Gnosticism, right. the, the knowledge. And they rejected the idea that God created the world. The material creation. world was bad. God yes. didn't create it. And Jesus only appeared to be human. And, and, so, the, and in fact, the God of the Old Testament was not the God yeah, of Jesus. He's, e- yeah, he's evil. He's not the yeah. father of Jesus. Right, right. You know, the, so, very, it's very un-Jewish in that Yeah, in totally, that totally. It's definitely a lot more Greek, and the, the early Christian church, like, totally rejected it. Play with the assumption that something like the theology and worldview behind the Qumran sectarians mm. is forming Paul's opponents in Colossae, um, then it makes sense, a lot of sense mm. of what Paul's writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you one particular phrase that's really interesting that I think is usually misinterpreted by um, Christian interpreters. Paul says, you know, these people take their stand. This is Colossians. People take their stand on what they have seen and something about the worship of angels. Mm-hmm. What we generally assume when we read that is that people are worshiping angels. But I think what the original meaning is, is that it's talking about angels worshiping God, which is what angels do. Yeah, yeah. So the worship of angels is angel worshiping God. Yes. Yeah, not angels people worshiping, worshiping God. Angels. Yep. But the importance of angels worshiping God is that we need to bring our worship into sync Mm. With the angelic worship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? So there's a Join whole, the song. Exactly. So there's a whole larger text, well-preserved text that Qumran called the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice. And it's all about divisions of angels, mm. angels as priests who are worshiping God. Mm. And they're very concerned at Qumran. One of their main concerns is... Uh, this calendar, this 360-day calendar that they have, a solar 
calendar. And it's very important when you observe the various festivals so that you can be in sync with it. So that the earthly worship needs to be in sync with the heavenly worship. That seems to be the underlying conception. Which would totally make sense. I mean, you see the entire tabernacle structure was this blending of heaven and earth. Exactly. And yeah, which would be that underlying assumption. It's not an unbiblical. No, not at all. Not a really unbiblical idea. No, and I think the point that you're making is, hey, I think if we immerse ourselves in the texts of these communities, then they're going to illuminate yes. parts of the New Testament that we would have mi- totally misunderstood. Yeah, right. And so it's it's giving a fuller meaning and in some ways correcting a false interpretation that because we didn't know. We have you know? the, you know, that re- one passage about head covering, you know. It says... You know, the woman should wear cover on her head for the sake of the angels or yeah. because of the angels. Mm-hmm. What is he talking about? Yeah. Do you he know? He seems to be, <laughs> you can easily imagine he's thinking about angels in the balconies, so to speak, mm. where you have a coordinated earthly worship and a heavenly worship. Mm. It's coordinated together. You know, the angels are participating in that worship, yeah. but they're in the balconies looking down at these bare heads. It's like, hmm. She got a good head of hair. (laughs) Nathan can't be trusted. (laughs) Okay. Cover your head. So for our listeners, and even for me sitting here, I'm going, how do I gain access to this information? So you're telling me that these these texts are important to rightly understand the New Testament. So how how do I educate myself as a as a lay person? Yeah. I would recommend that book by Ed Cook, Solving the Mysteries of the Dead Sea Scrolls, New Light on the Bible. I think it's fairly well written. Yeah, Zondervan puts that out, and it's a it kind of reads like a, a novel. Yeah. You know, he's, he mean, tells he's a, a story. Yeah, he's he writes in a kind of a journalistic, interesting style, but he's a very serious scholar in his, in his own right. I would encourage people to look at this Leon Levy digital library mm-hmm. site, mm-hmm. you know, for the Qumran text. I think there are some introductory kind of articles on there that you could look at. I think for anybody who is interested in this, we are doing primarily these podcasts, number one, to expose a lot of the misconceptions that people have around the Dead Sea Scrolls, to hopefully demystify them, to let people know like, hey, Whenever you hear, especially from Hollywood, some kind of conspiracy theory, you need to have a level of distrust around that um, because the people who are actually doing the work on this are rolling their eyes and going, what in the world? <laughs> like, who's coming up with this stuff? You know, because it just doesn't, those conspiracies just don't don't hold any water. And I think that the uh, secondly, just to understand that the Dead Sea Scrolls did connect us. The basis of our English translation is based on a, like he said, a medieval manuscript of the Masoretic tradition called the Leningrad Codex, which is about a thousand AD. And so what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was it connected us to um, really before Jesus to show like this has been faithfully transcribed over time because the Masoretic text is well represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then I think it also helps us understand, it gives us a window into that world to be able to see like, what did they care about? How do they view things? How does that form the context that we should read the New Testament through so that we aren't making ill-informed mistakes? 
and to that end, the Dead Sea Scrolls, these these eight to nine hundred texts that were found around the region of the Dead Sea are revolutionary. Mm-hmm. I would encourage you guys to check out Ed Cook's book, Solving the Mysteries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Timothy Lim wrote an, an, a very short introduction called The Dead Sea Scrolls that's put out by Oxford University Press. And then the website that Doug mentioned, which is... The Leon Levy Digital Library. Yeah, perfect. Hopefully, these two podcasts have been really helpful for you, at least to get you thinking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, this kind of like mystique around them. Hopefully, this has brought them down uh, to earth for you and and to help you understand what they are and even as importantly, what they're not. So anyway, Doug, thanks for your time, man. We really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun nerding out with you about the Dead Sea Scrolls. (laughs) And uh, until next time, you guys have a good one. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Doug Gropp on the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you like what you heard, then subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Leave us a comment on iTunes. And if you want to, you can email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. And until next time, peace. Bye.